Dear Heavenly Father, we come to you in the precious and mighty name of Jesus. We come with gladness, we come with thanksgiving, we come boldly, for we've been told that we can enter into your throne room, the throne of room of grace, not with fear, not with dread, but with delight and expectation. You invited us, Father. You love to hear from us. You love to interact with us, to respond to our prayers. You delight in the fact that we draw near to you, and we delight in that too. So, Lord, we want to draw near to you right now. And we ask your blessing upon the, the reading and the teaching of your word. Lord, we are needy, we are hungry, and we are asking that you would please open our hearts and our eyes. Help us, Lord, remove distractions. Would you be our teacher today by the Holy Spirit? And Father, would you use me as your servant to feed the flock, to feed your sheep, to love them with the love of Christ, and to minister to them your living word. And so we praise you for this time, and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen, amen. Okay, well, we continue our study through the upper room discourse, sometimes called Jesus' farewell discourse, because He's about to be going to the cross the following day. He'll be betrayed later this night, taken through some false trials, and He'll be you know, mocked and scourged, tortured, and then handed over to be crucified. And so this is imminent. It is upon Him. And so He takes this time to spend with His disciples in a, in a most intimate setting, and this would be chapters 13 through 17, and so we're currently working our way through in chapter 15. Last week, Pastor Dan covered verses 9 through 11 beautifully, and the title of that message was, The Fullness of Joy, The Fullness of Joy. Allow me to reread those verses for us, as I think they'll be helpful to set the context for where we're going today. So in verse 9, it says, As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. So Pastor Dan did a great job talking about the correlation between obedience and joy. Jesus says that if we keep His commandments, we abide in His love, we remain, continue closely to Him in His love, and that will give us His joy. We will be joyful Christians if we are walking in obedience to our Heavenly Father. And as we wrapped that sermon up last week, Jess and I were talking, and she shared this really interesting insight with me regarding that. She said, Jesus must have been the most joyful person that you could ever imagine because He walked in perfect obedience and communion with the Father. And then you consider the context of that time, there was the Roman oppression that was going on, and then the people were under the hypocritical religion of the corrupt leaders there who were putting a burden on the people that they could not possibly carry. And so you can just imagine the weightiness, the despair, the discouragement that uh, was probably so tangible in that culture. And then comes along Jesus, 
who walks in perfect obedience to the Father and probably exuded love in a way that nobody had ever seen before. And you know how it is. You're just drawn to people who have that kind of joy. And so I just thought, man, that is so cool. And in a lot of ways, I would say that verse, that our joy would be full, ties into or flows into the text that we are going to be looking at today. John 15, verses 12 through 16. So let's, let's read that together. And I'll make a couple more comments. Verse 12 of John 15, this is our text for today. It says, This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone laid down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends, for all that I have heard from my Father I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit, and that your fruit should abide, so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I command you, so that you will love one another. And so I would say that Obedience to the Father's commands is the path to true joy, obviously. But keeping Jesus' commands and knowing Jesus as friend is also the path to true Christian joy. And so I titled this message, The Joy of Friendship with the King. The Joy of Friendship with the King. Jesus is King. Jesus is Lord. If Jesus Christ is your Savior, then He is your Lord. He has to be both. He has to be both. There are plenty of people who would love to have a Savior and no Lord. They want to have no consequences, no condemnation. They want heaven, but they don't necessarily want to have a Lord that they must submit to and surrender to and follow. But you can't have it that way. Jesus must be your Savior, and He must be Lord. Jesus is Lord. He is sovereign King. He is Savior, but you know what? He is also friend. I love that. Such that even His enemies tried to deride Him by calling Him the friend of sinners. That was a bad thing in their eyes, but really that's a badge of honor. We love the fact that our Savior, Jesus, was the friend of sinners. Amen? He's a friend. Now, for many, they cannot conceive of God as a loving friend. Even other religions like Islam, they're, you know, they think of Allah, they don't think of Him as loving. They do not think of Him as a friend. That's a very foreign concept. Maybe we've gotten used to the notion, but for many, they have a hard time with that. To them, God is austere. That is to say, He's harsh. He's stern, he's severe, but our God is a loving friend. Our God is a loving friend to those who have put their faith in Jesus Christ. He is both master and friend, and I think that's an important balance to keep because for some people, Jesus, in their mind, is a a, a master and that alone. And to them, it's not a loving relationship. It's, 
It's keeping rules. It's doing enough good and not doing bad. And if somehow they think that they're doing good, then somehow they feel like they're in His loving graces. But nothing could be further from the truth. That's not how it works. But for others, Jesus is just a friend. And so they can really trivialize Jesus. And you've probably seen shirts or hats that say things like, Jesus is my homeboy. And, uh, you know, that's funny. And, you know, you can chuckle at that. But that's not, you know, that, that's, that's not good. That is uh, not a great way to think of Jesus as just merely my, my homie, uh, you know, my right-hand guy, the co-pilot. You know, you, you hear all these kinds of things. And so it, it's good to have this balance. Jesus is both master, he's Lord, yet he is friend. And so I want us to keep that in mind as we walk through this text, and there's really three points that we will bring out each in their turn as we walk through this text together. So with that, point number one, friendship with the king requires faithfulness to the king's commands. Friendship with the king requires faithfulness to the king's commands. I'll read verses 12 through 14. It says, this is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone laid down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. Now, verse 14 might sound a little strange to us, and for good reason. You're my friends if you do what I command you. Have you ever made a friend that way? I mean, would you introduce yourself to someone and say, look, I'll tell you what. We can be friends if you do whatever I tell you to do. I'm sure that would go over so well, right? No, no, it wouldn't. You'd be hard-pressed to make friends like that. So what, what's, and you know, honestly, I've always just kind of thought, well, he's Jesus. He can, he can do what he wants to do, say what he wants to say. I've never, I just kind of glossed over that. But what's really going on here? I think there's something significant to note. And I think to understand the dynamic here, we need to consider deeply something of the culture at that time, something of the, the ancient servant-master context. And I know this can be um, an awkward thing to, to try to talk about and, uh, and you know, grapple with and set ourselves in the context of, because we hear slavery and we're repulsed by it, as we should be, especially in light of, you know, our own history here in America but in this time, <clears throat> in Israel and Rome and surrounding areas, slavery was so in, ingrained in the world. There were millions upon millions of slaves, and it was <clears throat> just a part of life. It was the way that it was. And so the Bible even dealt with, since such is the case, how does one live godly in the midst of that kind of culture, where that kind of relationship is rampant, the slave-master relationship. And, uh, you know, the reality is a lot of people, their, their life as a slave was a good life. It was a much better life than they could have had otherwise. There were people who were servants to some very prominent masters, and for that reason, they had a certain level of power prestige, clout in the world. Slaves in that time, they did everything. They, they, were, they did every, you could have slaves who were physicians, 
any and everything that could be done in the trades, in and out, slaves did this. And so there was just this total intermixing of this dynamic. And then you had, really interesting, there were slaves in the church who became pastors, and then they led house churches, and their master basically was under their leadership as a pastor, as an elder in the church. So it's just this really, really interesting dynamic going on here, and I think we need to understand that a little bit to really get at what is going on here, the kind of late language that Jesus is using and the Bible frequently used this kind of language because it's something that the people would understand, because it was day-to-day life. It was all around people. It was part of many people's lives. And so they would understand clearly this dynamic as Jesus was explaining it. Jesus used this kind of language in His teaching often. In John 13, uh, verse 13, He says, "'You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am.'" If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you that a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. So Jesus regularly spoke of himself as the Lord. The corresponding word to Lord would be doulos, servant, slave. So you had the Lord, you had the servant, the slave. And the apostles regularly spoke of themselves as bond slaves to the Lord Jesus Christ. This was a title that they took with great pride because they, they surrendered and submitted them, their lives completely to the lordship of Jesus Christ. And Paul said in 1 Corinthians 4, 1, this is how one should regard us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. So we are servants of Jesus Christ. He is our master. He is our Lord. We are His servants, and it is required of us that we be found faithful. So that's kind of the dynamic that's going on here. Now, a faithful servant would at times rise through the ranks and become a very trusted friend. We see that dynamic even in the Bible itself. As you consider people like Joseph in Potiphar's house, of course, Potiphar's wife uh, lied against him and made it sound like he had uh, tried to assault her, and we know he did not. But he came to a place of great prominence in the house there as a faithful servant. You look at Daniel, he was taken out of the land of Israel, and he was brought into Babylon, and then look at the the heights to which he arose. And we consider a lesser-known name, Eleazar, who was the servant of Abraham, if you know anything about him, and uh, the kinds of responsibilities that Abraham placed upon him as a most trust, uh, trusted and close advisor and associate, and on and on we could go with that. And that's kind of the idea. You had kings, you had the C- Caesar himself, you had people who would spend their lives serving him, and they would come to a place where they were absolutely trusted, even with the life of the king. They knew everything about the king. They saw him in his most vulnerable state. They were there to care for him when he woke up, when he went to sleep, serving him his food, 
uh, just in any and every way so much more closely associated with him than really anybody else. And there comes this close trust and bond and friendship. And I think that's kind of the, the idea here. That's really, I think, the picture that Jesus is employing here with the disciples. You are my servants. You've been my servants all along, but now you're my friends. You're my closest, most trusted associates because you've been faithful to me. And he says, I want you to be faithful. And he tells them exactly what it is that they must be faithful in. He says that you are my friends if you do whatever I command you. So what is it exactly that Jesus commands? And he tells us. He says that you love one another as I have loved you. Now, three times in the previous chapter, Jesus says that if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. Remember that? Three different times. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. So then, what is the commandment? The commandment is that we should love. We should love. And I know we've heard this a thousand times. And so I want us, by God's grace, to try to hear this with fresh ears today and an open heart. Don't let this be something that you have heard so many times that it just goes right over your head and you think this is, I've heard it, been there, done that. question is, are we doing it? Because that's really the, the question here. We may know this, but are we actually doing it? And so Jesus lays out the command, we are to love one another, but you know what? This is no regular love. This is no regular kind of love. He qualifies this love. We are to love others as Christ has loved us. We are to love one another as Christ has loved us. Now, Jesus has already issued this command back in chapter 13. Back in chapter 13, Jesus said this. He says, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another just as I have loved you. You are also to love one another. And then he says, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love one for another. So Jesus says, I'm leaving, I'm going away, and I want you guys to love each other the same way that I have loved you, such that people are going to know that you are mine when they see this kind of love happening. That's amazing. What is it that is going to testify to the validity of our faith more than anything else? It's Christ's love flowing through us and affecting those around us. I mean, think about that. I know it's easy to think that it's having all the right answers. It's, it's knowing more Bible knowledge. It's being able to win in a debate. It's being able to convince people apologetically of the truth. Uh, it's, it's being able to you fill in the blank. But Jesus says what is most notable, what is going to really show people that you belong to Him is love. Love. Seriously, think about that. Think about that. So uh, are we? Are we loving people? Are we loving others? Are we loving our family? Are we loving the body of Christ practically, tangibly, as Christ has loved us? Now, Jesus says this is a new command, and it's not actually new because it's, it's an old command. First John says that very thing. 
Because the Old Testament says that we're to, to love God and we're to love others, right? But one commentator says this command of love is new and fresh because Jesus personified it. And it was shed abroad in our hearts and energized by the Holy Spirit. And so the way that Jesus came on the scene and loved people and then ultimately died as a demonstration of His love is a love that we've not seen before or experienced. And then to have the love of God poured out into our hearts by the Holy Spirit was a brand new thing. And so to have Jesus as our example and the Holy Spirit as our helper, we are now empowered to love each other as Christ loved us. Now, not perfectly, obviously. And also, Jesus loved us by dying and redeeming us. Obviously, we, we can't do that. Uh, we, can't, we can't save each other, we can't redeem each other, and we can't even return that love back to Jesus because He doesn't need saving anyway. But we are supposed to model our lives after Jesus in His love in some very real ways, some very particular ways. And so I just want to take a moment to consider this love because Jesus says there's no greater love than this. There's no greater love than this, and this is the kind of love that we have received if you are in Christ, and this is the kind of love that we are to give if we, if we are in Christ, if we want to keep His commandments, if we want to be friends with Jesus, then we've got to be about the business of loving others as He has loved us. This is not optional. This is not optional. If He is our Lord, if He's our Savior and friend, then we've got to do this. So we need to think deeply here. What kind of love is this? <clears throat> well, he says it's a love that lays down its life for its friends. So I would say, one, it's a targeted love. It has someone very specific in mind. Now, of course, we're called to love all people. We're called to love our enemies, right? But there's a very particular and special love that we're supposed to have for each other in this room a very particular and special love that we are to have for our brothers and sisters in the body of Christ. Above all, we are to love one another. We are to love all people, but we are to lay down our lives for the saints. So that's, that really kind of simplifies things here. You could, it could be overwhelming. How am I, I got to love the whole world. God loved the whole world. How in the world am I going to do that? Well, you know, let's just take it a step at a time. Let's start with priority. Number one, let's just love each other in this room. How's that? Let's love our brothers and sisters in Christ. Let's show love for the saints as Jesus has loved us. And so that gives us a point of reference, a place to start. It is also a sacrificial love. It's a love that lays down one's life. Now, we are to lay our lives down as living sacrifices. It's not likely that any of us would have to lay down our lives in a very real physical way and die for someone else in this room or in the body of Christ, but we are called to live in such a way that we are laying our lives down spiritually, sacrificially for one another. So what that means is, is that it's a love that comes at a cost. It's a love that comes at a cost to us. It doesn't necessarily come out of abundance. There are people who have an abundance and they're able to give from an abundance. That is great. 
Praise the Lord for that. But the kind of, I think, giving that the Lord really loves and appreciates is sacrificial giving, that which actually costs us something, right? That's why David said when he was going to buy some land to sacrifice to the Lord on, the person wanted to give him the land, but he insisted on buying it because he said, I will not sacrifice to the Lord on that which cost me nothing. This has got to cost something. I want to give to the Lord something that comes at a cost to me. And so, loving people when it hurts, loving people when it is not easy, serving needs and giving to real needs when we don't have a lot to give in the first place, that is real love, that is sacrificial love, forgiving when we do not want to forgive, serving when we don't feel like serving, when we're tired, when it's inconvenient, giving when we don't have a lot to give, loving people that are not very lovely, you know, sacrificial. Isn't that what Jesus did for us? He loved the unlovely. He loved the unlovable. Now, He is the King, and He has all the riches in heaven, and He has everything on earth belongs to Him. He owns the cattle on a thousand hills, so obviously He, he has abundance. But you know what? He gave His life. He gave His life. He set aside his position in heaven, a position of eternal, weighty glory, he set that aside, and he came to this earth, and he lived a humble life in submission to his earthly parents, and then he was mocked and ridiculed, scorned, tortured, betrayed, abandoned, crucified, suffered the wrath of God there upon the cross, and died a rebel's death for us, the holy, innocent, spotless Lamb of God. And so it cost Him something. Please believe that we will never in a million eternities understand the fullness of what it cost Him to love us. So I think by God's grace and His Holy Spirit, we can afford to love some folks sacrificially. Amen? It is also a love that has one's best interest in mind. It is concerned for the eternal good of another. That was ultimately what Jesus came to do. He came and He healed a lot of people. He did some really awesome works. But what He ultimately came to do was reconcile us to a holy God. He came that we would have life abundantly, eternally. And that's what He was mostly concerned with. And that's what we have to be mostly concerned with people's eternal good. Now, it is good to alleviate the physical needs of others. It's good to go on missions trips and to bring supplies and goods for sure. But the most important thing is people's eternal good. It's good to pray for each other. It's good to pray for people's physical needs. And we typically fill all our prayers up with those kinds of prayer requests. And that's not a bad thing, but it's not the best thing the best thing is to pray for people's eternal spiritual good, for those who are lost and for those who are saved but are struggling. We, and, you know, if somebody is suffering in pain and they're a believer, it's good to pray that God would bring them relief. But it's also good to pray that if it's not God's will, that God would sanctify them through their suffering and that God would reveal him, Himself to them in a greater way. So that's praying for the person's spiritual good, their eternal good. And that is the kind of thing that we most need to be concerned about. And that can be frustrating and painful for people at times. 
Because if we have to really confront a brother or sister, if we have to call them out, if we have to check them for some kind of unrepentant sin in their life, they typically, they're not going to like that. Odds are they may not even, they may not receive it. They may really defend themselves or they may try to come back at you even and point out some of your shortcomings. These things can happen and nobody wants to do that. Nobody wants to have to deal with that. Most of us, I don't think that we love confrontation, but if we love our brothers and sisters and we are concerned about their spiritual eternal good, then we must love them and confront them and have difficult conversations even. And so that's, that's another way in which we love sacrificially. It is a sacrifice to have to have those kinds of conversations because nobody wants to do that. But we're not loving people by letting them just go their own way. Amen? This is a love, Jesus' love is a love that is not always reciprocated. It is not always returned, Right? Uh, we don't always demonstrate our, our love towards Jesus. Much of the time, we don't. But you know what? It's not contingent upon anything. It shouldn't be a performance-based love. We're not loving people for what we can get. We're loving them for their good, period. You understand? Comprende? Yeah? We are loving people for their good, not how it makes us feel, not so that we can get some kind of you know, reward from it, because sometimes they don't respond back in love, and that is okay. Our love is not contingent upon other people's responses or performance. We have to love them freely. Christ loved us. We must love others. This love is a love that is a fruit of the Holy Spirit. It's a fruit of the... It has to be. Nobody in the flesh can produce this kind of love. Nobody can love people as Christ has loved them if they aren't one in Christ and two don't have the Holy Spirit. And so if you don't know Jesus, you haven't received this kind of love, and you most certainly cannot give this kind of love. So you have to have Christ. You have to have His forgiveness. You have to have His love in your heart by the Holy Spirit. You have to have the Holy Spirit producing the fruit of this kind of love in you so that this love flows out of you and flows out onto brothers and sisters. Amen? And it is a fruit of the Holy Spirit. you got to have it. And this is a love that involves action. This is a love that involves action. It requires follow-through. So are we doing it? This goes back to the text I read earlier. It's 1 John 3.16. It says, By this we know love, that He laid down His life for us. And we also ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. If anyone has this world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. So I could stand here and talk about 15 different ways in which Jesus' love is amazing, 15 different ways in which He has loved us, and then we can go out from here and not, not do it. We can marvel at it. We can be convicted by it. We can feel like this is amazing. I feel so challenged right now. The preacher just stepped all on my toes. Hallelujah. And then go out and not do anything with it. That is not good. 
That is not good. It's not enough to just talk about it. It's not enough to just marvel at it. That's the beginning to worship Jesus and to praise Him and make much of His glorious love. But then we have to go out and we have to love others with this love. And John says that it, we do it by taking care of people's physical needs. That's one very real and practical way in which we show the love of Christ. We care for the needs of others. And so there are needs, obviously, right here in this room. And in order to know people's needs, you've got to know people. You have to actually be in the body. You have to be building relationships. There has to be vulnerability, transparency. You have to have knowledge of needs. But you know, we have brothers and sisters around the world who are absolutely destitute. They've got nothing. At best, they may be living on a dollar a day in some countries. And so we have the ability, frankly, to love and encourage and support in very real practical ways brothers and sisters around the world, brothers and sister missionaries who are on the front lines serving Jesus sacrificially. They are laying down their life in love for the saints. And they are going down into the well, as it were, and we have the ability to hold the rope. We'll hold the rope. Not all of us can go, but we can hold the rope for those who can go. And so I would encourage you to think carefully about how you can support those kinds of endeavors. We have a ministry right here, as you know, the bridge uh, where it's a, it's a local endeavor, where we are trying to reach people in our community who are in the throes and the bondage of addiction. And we also, through this ministry, are able to reach people in other parts of the country. We've had brothers from all over the country here. And uh, it's, it's expensive, and it, you know we do it at no cost to the residents. Freely we've received, freely we give, right? But it, it still costs, it comes at a cost, and we have relied upon the generosity of God's people to be able to do this radical ministry. And so many of you have been generous to the church and to the bridge, and we thank you so much for your support. And we just want to encourage you to continue to do that and to pray about how you can support financially these ministries that God is using in such a profound and powerful way right here in our backyard. Amen? And so this is one way in which we can love. All right, I'm going to move on, and I'm going to move a lot more quickly because I really just wanted to camp on that right there. Point number two, friendship with the king includes being privy to the king's business. Friendship with the king includes being privy to the king's business. Verse 15, no longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my Father, I have made known to you. The love of Jesus transcends that of a servant-master relationship. The servant that is strictly a servant knows nothing beyond the instructions that have been given to him, and that's all that is owed him. He doesn't get the why. He's just told what to do, and he has to execute on that. But as friends, we are clued in. We're brought into the inner circle, made privy to the most intimate details. And this makes sense to us on a basic human level. We know what it is to be guarded. We don't just go sharing all of our most intimate life secrets and things with people that we don't know, with strangers, right? And we know what it is to have close friends and to have people that we feel safe with and vulnerable and we can open up and share with things, things that are important to us. 
So we understand this concept. And so Jesus has entrusted to us the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Jesus has made known to us all that He has heard from the Father as those who are Jesus' friends. If a loving friend reveals, then consider the extent to which Jesus has revealed the Father to us. If we're going to do a one-to-one correlation here, if a friend revealing something of themselves to someone else really shows the, the gravity or the magnitude of their friendship towards us, then think about how much Jesus has revealed to us of the Father and of Himself and of eternal matters. Jesus in love has revealed God's nature to us more fully, more perfectly. As He said, if you've seen Me, you've seen the Father. He has revealed to us the wrath to come and God's heart to save. Jesus in love has made known to us our present condition and our dire need for God's forgiveness and salvation. Jesus has made known to us how to live in a way that pleases our Heavenly Father. Jesus has made known to us how to live a life of obedience that produces true and full joy. Jesus has made known to us how to live a life that is fruitful and effective in this life, investing in eternity. So, let us make the effort to better learn and understand the things that our friend Jesus has revealed to us. Amen? We have the mind of Christ. We have the treasures of riches and knowledge here in this God's Word. He has said, here it is. Now, let's think about this on a practical friendship level. If I am pouring out my heart to you and I am sharing with you all of my deepest feelings and, and fears and desires and whatever, and you're just sitting there not paying any attention, what does that say? What kind of a friend are you? I used to have a buddy, he used to love to say, you're never going to make it. I don't know what, he, it was just this funny thing he would do. And so sometimes though, you'd be like pouring out your heart to him and he would just be like, you're never going to make it. And it's like, okay, I, okay, I get it. That was funny like a hundred times ago. Uh, and so that, but that's what it's like. Jesus has revealed all of this wonderful truth to us, and we can't even concern ourselves with taking the time to really know it, to learn it, to love it, to obey it. We must, brothers and sisters, we must, like a true friend. And this brings us to our third point. Friendship with the king is a privilege bestowed for the king's purpose. Friendship with the king is a privilege bestowed upon us for the king's purpose. Verse 16 says, You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit, that your fruit should abide, so that whatever you ask and ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. So Jesus reminds the disciples that they did not initiate any of this. He chose them, that Jesus sought them out and personally chose them. That's pure grace. That's what I think he's getting at here. This was true grace, the grace of God. You didn't choose me, I chose you. And this makes sense because a person does not designate themselves to be the friend and servant of the king. That is the highest honor that they have to be selected to do. They can't just say, here I am, king. I'm your servant. I'm your friend. 
I know you want me, right? The king must choose them. And so we have been chosen by Christ. It's a privilege that has been bestowed upon us by Jesus. No one takes this privilege to himself. Jesus says in Matthew eleven twenty five. 25, at that time Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them, there it is, he has revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. And so this loving revelation comes to us from the Son. It is a loving invitation as we are chosen by Him. But to what end did He choose the disciples and by extension us? Well, Jesus tells us, He appointed them and He appointed us that we would go and bear fruit, that we would live fruitful lives and that we would serve Him well, that we would be effective in our service to Him. He didn't save us so that we could just kick back and do nothing. We have been called and commissioned, chosen and commissioned to serve the Lord so that we would bear much fruit and bring Him honor and glory. To us has been granted this glorious call. And not only that, to us has been granted the privilege of prayer. And that's why Jesus says, whatever you ask the Father in my name, He may give it to you. Now this, I believe, also speaks to this idea of entering into the king's court. This is not something that just anybody can do. This is something that only a privileged few had the ability to do. To enter into the king's court was a dreadful thing, a fearful thing. Warren Wiersbe says, once again, Jesus brought up the privilege of prayer. The friends of the king certainly speak to their sovereign and share their burdens and needs with him. In the days of monarchies, it was considered a very special honor to be invited to speak to the king or queen. Yet the friends of Jesus Christ can speak to him at any time. The throne of grace is always available to them. So, brothers and sisters in Christ, we are friends of the King. We are friends of the Most High. We are called to serve Him, to keep His commands, to love one another as He has loved us, and we are invited into the King's court to pray. And what is it that we are to pray for? I would submit to you, it's the very thing that we're talking about here. We should pray that He would give us the ability and the opportunity to love one another as He has loved us. we got to pray for that. We need to pray for that. We need to pray that for each other. We need to pray that for our church. We need to pray that we would be effective and that we would be fruitful for the King so that we can serve Him, advance His cause here in the world, build up His church, and bring glory and pleasure to the King. Amen? Hallelujah. So praise God for the joyful friendship that we have with the King. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we love You. You are the King of kings and Lord of lords. You are our master and we are Your joyful servants. It's a joy to serve You. And we do so with glad hearts. Thank You that You have loved us with a love that we will never truly be able to wrap our minds around, maybe even into all of eternity. 
But Lord, we do recognize the significance of it even here and now because we know who we are, we know who we were, and we know that you loved us anyway. We know who we are in our weakness and in our failures and in our doubt, and you still love us. You still carry us along. You still guide us and provide for us and protect us. You still use us for your glory, for the giftings and the callings of God are irrevocable. Absolutely nothing can remove us from your love. Nothing can snatch us out of your hands. We are safe in the Father's arms. What a love. What love is this, that we have been made children of God, and so we are. So we delight to do your will, O God, and we want to keep your commands, Lord Jesus, and we want to love one another as you have loved us. And so we pray that you would help us to do that by the power of your Holy Spirit. Give us intentionality. Give us clarity so that we can see the opportunities. Give us resources so that we can meet those needs, whatever they might be. Lord, help us, help us, help us to do the things you've called us to do, for it's not enough to know these things. If we want the blessing, we must do them. Help us, Lord. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.